Good morning. I am very pleased to introduce our guest speaker today. This is Nancy Manshin White. She came down from Moorhead, Minnesota to do this talk. Uh, she received lay entrustment from her teacher, Diane Minaj, in 2016. And uh, her teacher, Diane, was the founder of Mount Equity Zendo in Pennsdale, Pennsylvania. And that's in the same tradition as ours, the Soto Zen tradition. Uh, Nanshin grew up in a farm, on a farm in North Dakota, as I did. We've been talking about that. Uh, she was a professor of economics at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania for 31 years and is now retired from that job and living in Moorhead, Minnesota. And she and her husband, Tom Tomei Knapp, who is here, over here, um, have founded the Open Land Saga in Warhead. And I am so happy to have Nanshin today here as a guest speaker. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for the invitation. Very good, delighted to be here. Here we are in this beautiful It's so light and bright. And then we have 21st century technology right here in front of us. Hi, little people. Are they the next one? Okay. Ah, the general focus of my talk today is called Everything is Practice. It's an important teaching from our founding Dogen. So, this is a Zen story, and we all know there are lots of Zen stories. Well, we have our own Zen stories too, right? So, let's, let's uh, go through one of the variations on the story of how Dogen came to the conclusion that everything is practice. One day, Dogen happened to meet an old tenser, a head cook. He had come to the port where Dogen's ship had docked in China. The head cook had come to purchase mushrooms for soup. He walked, he had walked from his monastery, it said about 12 miles away, and Dogen invited him to spend the evening aboard the ship. I must return to the monastery. He had obligations he had to fulfill as kitchen master. Dogen then asked him, why did you accept such a difficult task? Why not concentrate on Zazen and Sutra study? Which by Dogen's reasoning at the time would have been far more beneficial and much less difficult. The old tensos, so the story goes, laughed and said, my young friend from abroad, it is clear you have much to learn about the true meaning of practice and study. 
it is said that this event was transformative for Dogen, and that for Dogen's entire life, he taught and he moved that everyday activity was practice. So the flavor of this talk today comes from a book I've been recently reading. It's called Realizing Genjo Kawan. It is from Shohaku Moroshi. It's his translation of and commentary of Dogen's Genjo Kawan, which is the first essay in Shobo Genzo. It's interesting, as I reread this book, how our own changes manifest in what we recall and in how we interpret books that we read. There are essays, books, podcasts that I put aside for time, and then I reread them in a completely different way. This was the case with my rereading book, Realizing Kenjo Poem. I think that one of the reasons the meaning of parts of this book have become more vividly alive to me is that a fair number of people in our circle of friends, and I myself, have felt a pull to disengage with my local community and with world defense and focus more exclusively on myself my family, and friends. I think that we've un understandably become maybe confused, fatigued, and maybe sometimes feel helpless about what to do in the world in which we live. Today's talk began as an exploration of how our practice can alter the way that we create or experience our worlds that could lead us to live in this world and be less individualistic or tribalistic. In the book Realizing Genjo Koan, Okamura Roshi translates Genjo as to completely manifest, become, or actualize. Koan as he translates it, means the reality of our own lives. So, to actualize the reality of our own lives. What caught my attention in this reading of the book was his translation of Koan. The word Koan, he says, expresses the reality of our own we are the intersection of equality or universality, unity, oneness, and inequality or difference, uniqueness, particularity, individuality. So reality in this context or emptiness includes both unity and difference. He uses the example of a hand to describe reality as it is understood here. A hand is a collection of five fingers. Each finger has an independent shape. 
motion. From the perspective of one hand, all five fingers function together. There is no separation between them. When we see the fingers of united, there really is just one hand. Each of us can be viewed in the same way. We are both universal and individual. There are not two separate aspects of our being. The whole universe is just one universe. There is no separation within it. And yet, he says, this universe is a collection of unique individual beings. These individuals cannot be the same because each has its own particular time, position, and causal history. We cannot alter this reality because each and everything is completely independent. And yet, we can't separate ourselves or anything else from this unity. We really all exist in one space and time. For those of you who were here last week or heard Tim's talk, he spoke about these two sides of reality, difference and unity, in his talk about the Tao. Seeing these two sides, according to Okamura Roshi, is that, according to Gogan, we should express these two sides in one action. In other words, we give life to universal life through our actions. Ucham Kosho Roshi would call this the self-self in the self. <laughs> now, that's a lot of words, right? And I'm going to tell a story, another story, that's going to serve as an example of what he's saying here. My husband, Tomei and I, moved from Boulder, Colorado, where we were in graduate school, to Central Pennsylvania. That's where I'd accepted a position in the economics department of Mellon University. One of my colleagues was a professor of chemistry. His elder daughter, Hannah, was finishing a degree for McAllister. John and I became lifelong friends, and the two of us attended many of their family gatherings, including Hannah, her husband, Tom, and their two children. I met my Zen teacher, Diane Benhaj Roshi, in the early 2000s, I think 2002. She lived and trained in Japan for 23 years. Her students were beneficiaries of her rigorous training and her extensive connections, Zen connections, in Japan. Her teaching emphasized Zen as a practice of the body, and she fostered in us a deep appreciation for Dogen's teaching. Several of our guest teachers at Monaco were disciples of Uchem Hosho Roshi, one of whom was Shoha Okumura, who for a time was interim head 
teacher here at the Zen Center. As Ted mentioned, I was going interrupted in 2016 and moved back to work at Fargo to do narrative family and to, we founded Openland Sangha. About two years ago, Hannah died after a long illness. At the celebration of her life here in Minneapolis, we saw a person wearing a sunway, a garment constructed by the ones we're wearing. He had a shaved head in his compartment appeared to me to be influenced by sin practice. I saw this person engaging with suffering people and doing so with Tommy and I were both practicing with our own grief and being present with the grieving families, and we didn't seek out this person to talk with him. This spring, we participated in a practice period. It, <coughs> excuse me. It was hosted by Chapel Hill. Sand Center in North Carolina. We recited the song of the grass hut. It had been quite some time since I'd heard it, and during the, at the culmination of a long practice period, it penetrated deeply. I searched online for a copy of the poem, and in the process of that search, I found that someone named Ben Connelly had written a book. Inside the grass hut, I ordered a copy. When the book arrived, there was a photo of the author on the back cover. When I saw the photo, I exclaimed, That's him! That's the Zen priest who is at Hannah's celebration of life. I postponed making a connection to Zen Center. Solving the mystery of the identity of this Zen priest was just the nudge I needed to check out the website. I enrolled in a practice period with Ben on the Paramedis and signed up for a session. When the practice period ended, Ted and I made contact and an invitation to offer a talk was extended. About two months ago, a group of us were sorting and downsizing Mount Equity's library in Pennsylvania. When we came across copies of the Zen Center publication from the 1980s, my teacher wanted to find a home for these volumes. Today, they come back to me as a gift from Mount Equity, where they have been stored with love for 35 years. And today, I will quote Kanagiri Roshi from one of these volumes. Let's just ponder for a moment one small variation in any of these millions and billions of circumstances, a few of which I've mentioned so far. Any change in any of those as I know it, this moment would not, excuse me, it's slipping. And this moment, as I know it, would not have occurred. I wouldn't know this moment as it is. And that's true for every moment of all of our lives, every present moment. 
is all of space and time, and every moment is changed. Every circumstance that I've described here is unique, is particular, is individual, and yet it isn't. While the individual non-sheen sits in front of you and lives her non-sheenness, she is also enacting the universal. Look at all the factors in the story and add millions and billions more. She came here in a car she didn't build. She eats food that was made possible by thousands to sustain her life. She was taught by Diane Roshi. Her practice was supported by her husband, her cats, her sangha in Pennsylvania. Hi. And her sangha in Moorhead. Hi, Chris. Hi, everybody else. She is offering a talk that comes from centuries of study and practice and translation and sacrifice and support in this location that has been maintained and grown through decades of hard and loving work using technology that was developed by thousands more. She's been influenced by millions of experiences, people, books, including all of you sitting here today. So what we call a talk by guest teacher Nanshin White is an endless stream of activity that has really changed and relationship that we call the interdependent or universal self. So this whole story is an example of interdependent origination in which this individual non-sheen is expressing a universe from which she cannot be separate. difficulties because we create a world with labels and concepts and conditioned thoughts, including the notion of a fixed separate self. This world of labels serves us pretty well in some ways. If you are a nurse, you need to be able to differentiate between an antibiotic and a tetanus shot. If you're an accountant, you need to know the difference between a balance sheet and an income statement. However, in this personal story, I saw Ben as a Zen priest at a hundred celebration of life because of my individual experience with Zen priests. I could have said to somebody who is a martial artist, uh, I think that person's a Zen priest, and that other person could have said, nah, he's not keto practitioner, and we could argue about that. Once we form an idea, there's bound to have someone who has an idea that's different from us. We can then attach to those imperfect maps of reality, as Okamura Roshi calls them, and we can defend those imperfect maps. And of course, we know that the results are war, 
attempted coups, racial and other forms of discrimination, murder, family disagreements, views on individual freedom. The list goes on and on and on. Now, you probably want to want some examples. How do we practice Genjo Kalani our lives? How do we live out this present universal reality by practicing individual everyday activity? To begin, I'm going to give you a warning. And the warning, as far as I uh, I would consider it for purposes of this talk, comes from a passage in the Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, where Suzuki Roshi is actually paraphrasing a very well-known passage from Genjo Koan. Here's what Suzuki Roshi says. The purpose of studying Buddhism is not to study Buddhism, but to study ourselves. It is impossible to study ourselves without some teaching, but the purpose of studying ourselves is to forget ourselves. When we do that, we actually are the true activity of the universe. Our practice is to be aware of that fact. So the attitude or quality of our activity has its foundation in Soto Zen, in Zazen. We adopt the posture, sit, sometimes when conditions allow, facing a bare wall, and we let go of thoughts as they arise. Okamura Roshi says, quote, we accept everything that springs up from our consciousness. We neither negate nor affirm our thoughts. We just sit upright, breathing naturally. We keep waking up and letting go of our thought. As such, sitting is not my action anymore. All beings are sitting, using our body and mind. That's all. And in doing so, we put our entire being on interdependent origination, impermanence, and egolessness. Isho Fujita writes in a lovely piece, by the way, called, it's online called, Zazen is not meditation. He writes, when we sit, Zazen is our activity, and we fully surrender to that activity. There is only activity, and that activity without the ego self is called Buddhist activity, end quote. That is the essence of the practice. Whatever activity is your everyday activity in the present, just be present wholeheartedly attending to whatever that activity is. I'm going to turn to an example of a practice that is zazen off the cushion. And this has to do with eating and preparing food as a way to 
Genjo koan or lines. It's an activity, this idea of Genjo koan or life is an activity that Taigen Leighton calls allowing myself to express the world and the world to express me. At Mount Equity, we were taught a formal ritual for eating, and I'm pretty certain you would do that during the session here at the Zen Center. It's called Gyohatsu. Some call it Oryogi, which refers to the bowls that are typically used. A practice with food can be a deep and deep practice, and it's fairly pragmatic, right? We don't add another activity to our already busy lives. It's something that we do on a daily basis. What can happen from Gyohatsu is that we experience eating in a very different way when it is the activity of the universe through your own individual actions. It shifts the focus. It's not into calorie counting or what we eat, but how we eat food as a spiritual practice. Chosen Bays of Great Bell Monastery in Oregon wrote a book called Mindful Eating, and I used it in a first-year seminar that I taught for a number of years. Here's her quote. When something opens the channel between our heart and the holy mystery that is present in each moment of our life, we are fed from the source of deepest truth. If this happens while we are eating, then physical food becomes spiritual food. For meals during session, we prepare to eat by reciting meal goggles, which interrupt periods of silent eating. There are ritual ways of eating, receiving, and serving the food that are the lived activity of the meal goddess. So, here are some examples. We reflect on the efforts that brought us this food and consider how it comes to us. We reflect on our virtue and practice and whether we are worthy of this offering. We regard this food as good medicine to sustain our lives to free the mind from excesses such as greed. We connect our body-mind to the food by being aware of our hunger and choose our portions accordingly. We don't waste food even if we've made an error in portions or it's something we don't like. I learned that I really don't dislike beets and lima beans. As a mature adult, I avoided them just because my mother forced me to eat them. <laughs> Yohatsu is a leave-no-trace practice. To waste food is to diminish the efforts of those who sustain my life, to disregard gifts from the earth, the sky, the 
sun, the rain. To regard food as a gift is to reflect on our practice and to take us into gratitude. We clean the bowls and the utensils with water. We drink some of it and then offer the rest of it to the plants to sustain their lives. Paduri Roshi in one of these volumes refers to food as oneness. Your activities, your joined palms, your state of mind, your breathing, the servers, the cattle, the water, all functions are concentrated on food. We become food. The point of this ritualized way of eating is not to perfect ourselves during session and then go home. Eventually, for me, there was no difference between session and non-session. At home, I would make menu plans and purchase those foods. What we eat is determined by our practice, our taste to some degree. Changes in our bodies over time, seasonal variations in the availability of food, and we try to pay attention to our bodies and serve quantities that are consistent with those bodies' needs. Do we waste food? Yes, but infrequently. But that's practice too, to examine the circumstances that led to some food waste and to transform our lives in a way that minimizes that waste. My training is Tanzania head cook at Monarch with the also man that I frequently check the contents of the refrigerator and the pantry. Sometimes the food itself determines whether a vegetable or a fruit or tofu or tempeh is consumed rather than meat. One of the aspects of the letting the universe or the pantry determine what we eat is it creates some vitality and some spontaneity in our lives. We've made many unplanned meal combinations. We call them clean the refrigerator out meals that are much more inventive and sometimes tastier than those that require a whole lot of deliberation and preparation. There is a lesson there for allowing creativity within that structure. I'd say a lot of our practice has been like that. So the activity of merging individual and universal, for me it creates an attitude by which I approach life. I am more aware that to eat is to create suffering. Both practices, as head cook and the ritual practice of eating, for me, can also be forms of protest. When I adopt the attitude that I am one with the industrial food supply and its reliance on massive cost equipment and banks that finance all this, the government's farm subsidy programs that favor production of unhealthy foods 
its dependence on chemical and fossil fuel industries, farming practices, when I really include those in my work, eating can be a form of activism that I've also taught to others. When I was a professor, I was supported in creating that first year seminar to which I referred a few minutes ago. The students were interested in food at that time. It's kind of the beginning of all the food networks and all the emphasis on uh, becoming foodies and food status and all that. Students were on board for including a section in this class called Mindful Eating uh, that would, in, would involve them in weighing the food waste from the plates in the cafeteria, determining what time of day, what foods were raised, weighing the volume. And at that time, all of the wasted food on campus went into a landfill where it was producing methane, which is a greenhouse gas. We found funding to bring a national anti-food waste advocate to campus, and we developed plans for the university to reduce food waste in the cafeteria. A group of us created this sustainability committee where we, in, where we frequently met with college administrators trying to coax them into adopting our plans. The time was not right for our ideas to be accepted. That too is practice. How to be present in a conflict when you feel very passionately about something and how to let go of gaining mind. Everything is practice, especially what we label our failures or our mistakes. I will close with a quote from Dogen, from Genjo Kohan. If there are fish that would swim, or birds that would fly, only after investigating the entire ocean or the sky, they would find neither path nor place. Please don't mistake these words for practice, and please find your way of expressing the universe and letting the universe express you. Thank you very much.